Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to hope you had a great, great holiday and to let you know that this year there's going to be a lot of great things happening revolving around the tone of this podcast, but to a much higher level of helping all of you in whatever level you're at to figure out ways to take your careers to the next level and to succeed tremendously in this comedy business. So look for that. Also, the main reason I'm putting out this episode today with Larry King is, as you know, he's battling COVID-19, and he's in a very high-risk category. So my hope is by releasing this best of episode one and two, that hopefully it'll bring a lot more prayers from all of you out there for him to have a very speedy and full recovery. Best of luck this year in 2021. The best is yet to come. Enjoy. I always try in an interview, Barry, to uh, put myself in the other man's shoes to try to find out what makes people tick. For example, nobody evil thinks they're evil. When I would interview people regarded as evil, I would try to get at them from their perception. Like someone asked me, what would you ask Osama bin Laden? Well, I wouldn't, the first question would not have been, why did you bomb 3,000 people on 9-11? My first question would have been, You grew up in one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. Why'd you leave? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. We have a great show today for you. Legendary broadcaster Larry King. I tell you, this is one of the most inspiring interviews that I've ever done. And this guy isn't just on Mount Rushmore. He's standing on top of it when it comes to interviewing. 
And before I get started, I want to thank everybody for all the incredible kind messages and every kind of way, shape, or form that you've sent to me. It's been incredible. I'm so appreciative. And if you ever want to get a hold of me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Twitter or Instagram. And I will find you and I will answer your messages because you have been so kind. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Larry King, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to be very long. It's hard to condense an introduction of a legend like this. It's next to impossible. All right, Larry King was born in Brooklyn in 1933, and he's an American television and radio host, producer, and actor whose work has been recognized with accolades, including two Peabody's, and ten Cable Ace Awards. At an early age, he suffered a tragedy when his father died at 44 of a heart attack, which resulted in him, his mother, and the family being supported by welfare. A CBS staff announcer whom King met by chance suggested he go to Florida, which was a growing media market with openings for inexperienced broadcasters. So King went to Miami, and after initial setbacks, he got his first job in radio. The manager of a small station, WAHR, now WMBM in Miami Beach, hired him to clean up and perform miscellaneous tasks. When one of their announcers quit, they put King on the air. His first broadcast was in 1957 when he worked as the disc jockey from 9 a.m. to noon. He also did two afternoon newscasts and a sportscast and was paid $55 a week. He started doing interviews on a mid-morning show for WIOD at Pumpernick's Restaurant in Miami Beach. He would interview whoever walked in. His first interview was with a waiter at the restaurant. Two days later, he interviewed singer Bobby Darren, who was doing a concert later that day after he walked into the restaurant having heard King's radio show. Darren became King's first celebrity interview guest. His Miami radio show launched him to local stardom. The first American coast-to-coast -coast concert tour of the Beatles brought the British invasion of rock and roll music in 1964 and brought King his first nationwide exposure. King followed along with the group, providing an intimate look at the cultural and music phenomenon for weeks with several behind-the-scenes interviews and commentary broadcasts. In 1978, King went national on a nightly mutual broadcast system coast-to-coast. -coast. It was broadcast live Monday through Friday from midnight to 5.30 a.m. Eastern, and King would interview a guest for the first 90 minutes, with callers asking questions that continued the interview for another 90 minutes. For its final year, the show was moved to afternoons and was eventually given comedian David Brenner, and radio affiliates were given the option of carrying the audio of King's new CNN evening television program from the Westwood One radio simulcast of the CNN show. There it began where he started Larry King Live on CNN in 1985, hosting a broad range of guests from controversial figures of UFO conspiracy theorists and alleged psychics to prominent politicians and leading figures in the entertainment industry. King was a workhorse. After he did the CNN show from 9 to 10, he would then travel to his mutual radio office to do his radio show when both shows were still airing. 
Additionally, King wrote a regular newspaper column in USA Today for almost 20 years. The final edition of Larry King Live aired December 16, 2010, after a quarter of a century. In March 2012, King co-founded Aura TV, a production company with Mexican business magnate Carlos Slim. And in 2013, Aura TV celebrated their 100th episode of Larry King Now. One of his greatest political passions is the fight for global climate change reform, which he says is threatening humanity's existence and is a potentially catastrophic issue on the environment and our health. He continues to support many, many charities, including heart disease after being affected by a heart attack himself that almost took his own life. King remains a national treasure and has conducted more than 60,000 interviews in his career. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, truly, one of the greatest honors that I've ever had doing this show. Please welcome my guest today. Larry King. I know you're thrilled. <laughs> I know I know what's going through. Your heart is going a little faster. You're sitting here in my sumptuous Beverly Hills home. But carry on. Do your best. I will. It's beautiful here. <laughs> I want to share something with you. This is very odd. I've studied you for so long, and I've watched you for so long. I have absolutely no nerves at all, and normally I have had nerves when I've interviewed people before who I really hadn't I'll, met before. I'll tell you why you don't need nerves. It's your microphone. It's your podcast. It's your show. You're in control. I am at the mercy of you. Why should you be nervous? I should be nervous. <laughs> like my friend Herbie says, who wrote, You Can Negotiate Anything, this comes to mind. If you owe the bank $200,000 and it's due tomorrow and you don't have it, who should be nervous? You or the bank? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that there's very few guests that when they're on your show that you feel like it's not your show. Very, very rarely. You're always in control. Even when it seems like you're not in control, you're in control. For example... Don Rickles, the late Don Rickles, one of my oldest and dearest friends, he put me on the floor. He says hello, and I'm laughing. But even though I'm laughing, and I'm banging the desk, and I'm out of control, I'm in control. In other words, it's always your base. It's always my base, no matter what. Who is the guest out of 60,000 interviews that always tried to wrestle control more professional guests don't try to wrestle control cosby was a great guest i just interviewed neil degrasse tyson one of the great guests of all time they're so profound i have never barry i have i i guess this goes back to my childhood i'm insatiably curious insatiably curious that's why i've been doing this 61 years and I'm just as curious today as I was 61 years ago. Or back to when I was nine years old and I'd ask a bus driver, why do you want to drive a bus? I am just curious. And that curiosity comes through to the guest. So they know I care about them. And when they know I care and when they know I'm curious, 
You, you don't have many problems. You really don't. You have a lot of similarities to stand-up comedians. And oh, tell- well, I do stand-up. I did a tour a couple of years ago. I speak at conventions, and I always tell stories. I never speak seriously. I just did last week the Young President's Organization had a riot. I, tell, I love making people laugh. If I hadn't been an interviewer, I'd have been a stand-up. Absolutely. There's nothing like... Nothing. Of all the things I do, the best time I have is when I'm doing stand-up. When you walk out on a cold stage, and they're there, and you know you're funny. You know you're funny. And if you deliver it right, you know you have good material, because it's real stuff. I'm telling real stories. That moment, when you come to the punchline of a joke or the punchline of a story, when you know they're going to laugh, and then they laugh, it's orgasmic. Nothing like it. Cold stage, nothing like it. The world's best time is a stand-up comedian when you're successful and you got them going. You're having a better time than them. Buddy Hackett used to talk about the monitor the monitor in a comedian's head when you walk out stage and you get them, but you're also saying, okay, I see that person talking over there with their boyfriend. I see the exit there. I see the doorman walking there. I see the person delivering the drink. Yeah, they, oh, it all comes in, but you try to get them. And when you get them, you feel much better. But he came on my show once and said, before I even asked a question, he said, did you hear about the guy with wooden legs? that lived in an all-wooden house. They had a fire. They saved the house, but the guy burned to the ground. (laughs) 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 See, delivered well, that's buddy. That's funny. You know, when you know what's funny, Lenny Bruce was a great friend of mine, and he used to do a lot of things about what's funny and what's not funny. What did he say was funny and not funny? Montana is funny. (laughs) (laughs) New York is not funny. New Jersey is funny. Atlanta is not funny. Milwaukee is funny. Chicago's not. (laughs) Now, you can't even explain it, but it's, it's truth in its idiom. It is what it is. Swiss cheese is funny. American cheese is not. I don't know why, because you could have said the reverse. Lenny used to do this on Jewish. What's Jewish and what's not, you know? Uh, Nebraska's not Jewish. Even if you're Jewish and you live in Nebraska, you're not Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the other reasons I see you as similarities as a stand-up comic is that comedians, they go on the road. Sometimes they do three shows on a Saturday night. And... Sometimes the third show, they have more energy and they're better on the third show, or at least they're equal to the first show. And I think what's always been fascinating watching you, and if you don't mind me saying, you're like the Denzel Washington of talk show hosts. There's not one frame where it seems like you take a moment off. I'm always in the moment. I, I... I can be dead tired. So whether I'm going on the air, 
Like this morning, I had to get up early. I was supposed to be in New York, and I wasn't this week. So Neil deGrasse Tyson was scheduled for noon in New York. I had to be there at 9 this morning. It's 45 minutes away, our studios. Had I breakfast, I got up earlier than usual. So when I got there, I'm dead tired. I'm really tired. When they were putting the makeup on, I was sleeping. Then I sit down. I seal Neil deGrasse Tyson by satellite. And the moment that light goes on, bang, bang, I'm right into it. It's the same if I'm standing on a stage and talking or addressing a group. Something kicks in. That red light on that camera, which I've been looking at for a lot of years, seven decades, still energizes me. It still gets me going. Like I asked Milton Berle if he ever is going to retire, and he said, retire to what? <laughs> I will die on the air. I, I, I just know it. That's the way I'm going to go. I just, I'll be asking a question, <laughs> and down, and and it'll make the news. You know, page three. I asked Neil Tyson this morning if he's afraid to die, and he said he's only afraid to die if he feels he hasn't accomplished what he wanted to accomplish when he's dying. I, I'm afraid to die because I'm too curious. In other words, how the hell are the Dodgers going to do, right? I don't want to die before I find out how they're going to do. But then I don't want to die before the elections. Who's going to be elected? But then the Super Bowl. But then <laughs> it's next year's baseball and the National Hockey League and the NBA. And who's going to be the next president? I don't want to die. Because I like being around. I I was thinking for a while about being frozen. So I'd come back. So my wife said to me, well, you'll come back in 200 years. You won't know anybody. I said, I'll make new friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put up with it. I like living. I've been, I've had every known, look, I've had a heart attack, quintuple bypass surgery, prostate cancer, radiation, type 2 diabetes, and they caught lung cancer early. First stage, they took out 20% of a lung. My urologist was checking me the other day and he looked at all of my records from Cedar sinai and he said to me, if I showed this to someone, this person is dead. This, I'm looking at your medical records, you are not alive. So what keeps me going? Modern pharmaceuticals, I don't deny that. Modern pharmaceuticals have played a big part. And my love of life. I'm sure. positive that's part of it because I love getting up in the morning. And no matter what is ever told to me, I never think it's the end. When they told me, you're having a heart attack, I didn't think I would die. When they told me that I had prostate cancer, I'll be all right. When they told me you got first stage lung cancer, I'll make it. So I have internal optimism. When's the last time you had serious internal pessimism? Oh, oh, internal pessimism, not a lot. Pessimism about what's going on, constant. Um, 
I asked the great lawyer, Edward Bennett Williams, who is a great friend of mine, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He said, of course I'm a pessimist. I'm smart. <laughs> uh, about the world, I'm a pessimist. I'm a pessimist about the future of America. I'm a pessimist about the presidency. Internal, health-wise, I'm optimistic. External, phew. I I don't have great hope. Do not have great hope. When's uh, the last time you had great hope for our country? When Obama was elected, that was a great day for me. Great day for America. It was a great turn. Sadly, we've turned way back. Racism, which I think is a curse and a disease and makes no sense to me, is now more prevalent than before. I don't understand it. I've never under... Maybe I was where I grew up in Brooklyn. I don't, I don't understand it. It's like, for example, it's the color, it's the pigment of skin... Why the hell would that matter? If you're black and I'm white, what the hell would that... What What do you care? Look at all. Look at all the deaths, the civil war, the stupidity of racism. The moral stupidity, the intellectual stupidity, the economic stupidity. The South had to build four bathrooms in every building. Extra plumbing, cost the money, crazy, crazy. So I've never understood that. And when I still see it exist, it drives me nuts. You had an amazing interview that I think I'll, I'll always remember with a police officer that was paralyzed in yeah. a wheelchair. Sergeant McCall. That just blew me away and you talk about racism I don't know if you feel like telling the audience about well, that. Sergeant McDonald came on my show and he was in a wheelchair his beautiful wife was with him he had a four year old son he was paralyzed from the neck down so he has never touched his son his son touches his face uh, good looking guy and it's, I think he just passed away but, but then it was, it was 40 years ago and I said, what happened? And he said, uh, there was a series of, of, of stolen cars, stolen bikes and cars, mostly bikes in Central Park. And so he was cruising in his patrol car with another, and he was, the other guy was driving, and he saw this black kid with a brand new Schwinn, get out of his car, approached the kid, and the kid shot he saw smoke go up, he saw pain, they gave him last rites. He pulled through, but he was paralyzed. When he was back in his wheelchair and okay to exist in society, his child was just born, he said he wanted to talk to the kid that shot him. The kid was 17. Why did he want to talk to him? He just wanted to know why he shot him. Why? Is, why? Why? I just came over to talk to you. So I visited the kid. He said, I visited the kid in prison, in jail. He wasn't yet tried. And uh, why'd you shoot me? And the kid said, I'm an A student. My brother's a bad kid, and he left town. He, I'm, I'm holding a gun for him. He says, hold this gun for me. So I was holding it. 
I have a, I'm a grocery delivery boy after school, and I've been saving my money. I just bought this new Schwinn bike. New Schwinn bike. And you are the eighth or ninth cop to stop me that day to ask what I'm doing with that bike. So I want to ask you a question. Would you have stopped me if I were white? And the cop said I couldn't answer him honestly. And the cop realized that if I could not answer him honestly, then it's something in me. So he worked on this kid, wound up being a foster father to the kid, and the kid became a cop. And at the I was crying, I was crying. But those are those moments in time that are, you know, they're just Danny Kay. On my radio show years ago, I'm interviewing Danny Kay all night long. At three in the morning, this woman calls in and says, I, I never thought I'd ever talk to Danny Kay. I can't believe that I'm talking to Danny Kay. He said, and he said, why? And she said, my son was in the Navy. He was killed in Korea. And he was a big fan of yours, Danny. He loved you. He used to imitate you. We'd have relatives over you, all your shtick. And so he had in his footlocker, when they sent that stuff home to me, the only picture was of you. The picture of you, Danny, in my footlocker. So I framed that picture, and I put it next to a picture of him in his Navy uniform. And that's on my television set, the picture of you and the picture of him. And I dust both faces every day. And Danny starts till I cry, and the woman starts to cry. I start to cry. It's on the radio. And he says to her, what was his favorite song? And she said, Dina. And he sang it to her. And there's that moment, three in the morning, Danny came me, a woman on the phone, and he's singing, Dina, is there anyone fina in the state of Carola? Moments. And I've had moments like that in a career of 61 years. I pinch myself every day, Barry. I pinch, I swear to God, uh, the last time I worked was for United Parcel Service. I was 21 and a half years old. I was a helper on a truck. UPS delivered all the packages for New York's department stores. There were no planes, no. We had the brown truck and the brown uniform. First check I ever saw over $100 was from UPS. Had a bunch of odd jobs, but. $100 for how much? One week, two weeks? 40 hours. They, they were good paying, still are, I'm told. And that was a good job, wearing my little brown, you have to check out your uniform every day, and how do you look? So as you're delivering the packages, do you have any aspirations of oh, the yeah. entertainment business? My aspirations to be on the radio began when I was five years old. I used to listen to the radio and then run into the bathroom and imitate what I just heard. And now a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Uh, turn out your 
Turn down your blinds, lock your door, <laughs> crawl under your couch, and turn your lights out, Arch Obler. Radio fascinated me. Theater of the mind. When I was a teenager, you could go visit quiz shows and other things in New York. I'd go and watch the announcers. I wanted to be an announcer. I wanted to be Bob and Ray. I wanted to be Red Barber. I wanted to do baseball. I never went to college. My father died when I was nine. I always wanted it. And one day on the street in New York, I met James Sermons, who's still alive, by the way. He's 100. Who was the chief staff announcer at CBS. And someone introduced me, and I said, where, where should I break in? I think I want to be an announcer. He says, go to Miami because there's no unions. There's a lot of stations. And there's people on the way up and co sort of retired people who are enjoying themselves. I went down, knocked on doors, got a job, was a disc jockey for about a year. And then some restaurant, Pumpernicks, wanted a guy to host a radio show, and the rest is history. Now, that was a radio show from there, but you were interviewing waiters and Yeah, but then Bobby Darren walked in after about a month. Bobby Darren. He was working across the street. He came in, and then suddenly that caught on. Jimmy Hoffa came in, Ed Sullivan, uh, comedians, people who were working the hotels, Rickles would come in dressed as a busboy. <laughs> I remember he would go past the fat lady and he said, you're ordering butter, what? <laughs> <laughs> I had so many adventures with Don and them, and I, I loved, loved comics, loved interviewing comics, had great times with comics, Mel Brooks, put me away. I played the 2,000-year-old man. And then they, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Mel Brooks was on my radio show. And this is the truth. I said to him, wow, what a day. He said, yeah. I said, do you want to be the 2,000-year-old man, which is the funniest album ever made? He said, okay. I said, Mel, I said, Mr. 2000, we've just walked on the moon. What do you think of that? He goes, the moon... The moon is my favorite thing in the whole atmosphere, in the whole environment, in the whole universe. I love the moon. For 400 years, I love the moon. And then, one day, Bernie said, isn't the moon beautiful tonight? And I said, the moon? The moon is beautiful. I thought I had a cataract. <laughs> <laughs> now, think of where that humor comes from. I thought I had a cataract. <laughs> I interviewed him in 1964 at the New York World's Fair. And I said to him, what do you think of a fair? He goes, fair. <laughs> I said, fair? We got monorails, skyrockets. Were you at the first fair? Since he you, you know. The first fair, the whole world came, 197 people. <laughs> With the whole bottom, he says, not only that, the fair was held, there was no means of transportation. So the fair was held at the bottom of a ravine. In fact, that was one of the thrills of the fair. Watch him roll in. You had to roll in to watch it. And he says, and we, oh, we thought the burning bush was a ride. <laughs> people jumped on, you jumped off. I mean, that, that, and so I love... 
that kind of sense of humor. You know, when I was on the radio all those years, doing radio and television, I never got to see Seinfeld because I was on the same time he was on. So now, in the past year or two, I watched all the Seinfeld episodes. Can't believe how funny that was. Genius of Seinfeld and Larry David, the, the just genius to come up with involving plots about just nothing. I just, I, so I appreciate humor above all. One, two, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. It could be one word, a sentence. The Beatles. I had the great fortune of no, having Paul McCartney play piano here in this house on that <laughs> piano. I had dinner with him, and uh, he came over the house, and he told my wife what to record. She made a record, and he had an idea of mixing up two Beatles songs. And then I interviewed on the one-year anniversary of their production in Vegas. I interviewed him and, and uh, Yoko Ono. I had him... Yoko Ono, George Harrison's widow, and the drummer. Ringo so, Starr. Yes, I had Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, and the two widows on for an hour. So I had almost the Beatles, in a sense, in compass. But I interviewed McCartney quite a few. I had a great funny experience with McCartney. He's singing in Vegas at the MGM Grand, 12,000, 19,000 people, I don't know. So he says, come see me before the show, because after the show, there'll be a mob scene there. So I go in before the show, and we walk on the stage together. You know, the curtain's closed, and we're talking, and the band is there, and suddenly a voice off stage says, you're on, Paul. So uh, I said, I better, he says, okay, go through the curtain and just walk down where you're sitting. I said, like the front center. He said, just go through the curtain, go down the side steps. Well, anyway, as I opened the curtain, <laughs> the lighting guy thought it was McCartney, which is the way they opened. So the curtain opens and the light's on me. <laughs> the audience start to yell, Larry, Larry. And McCartney from behind the curtain says, sing something. <laughs> <laughs> That's my McCartney sto Beatles story. Betty Davis. Oh, I loved her. She with her little glove, white gloves, and her cigarette. She was one of the few people who was allowed to smoke. Smoke, yeah. She and... Uh, Sean Penn, right? Sean Penn. And I said to her, what did you think about working with Faye Dunaway? And she said, I prefer professionals. <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Brando. The best. I love Marlon. Went to his house. Did two interviews with him at his house at the network, had dinner with him a few times. In his house, there was nothing that said he was an actor. There no Oscars, no books on theater, only on architecture. He was fascinated with architecture. Loved to sing old songs. Loved Yiddish. Loved the Yiddish language. So when he did that interview, the cop when he said the Jews did that shock you? Yeah, it did, and it shocked him. And he he he. I don't know where he, I knew where he was coming from, but he met with rabbis and 
he apologized, I guess. But that was a very, uh, a very thoughtful, frank opinion of his about Hollywood and minorities. He was a big stand-up for minorities. Frank Sinatra. Jackie Gleason got him for me. Uh, I said, I, it's impossible for me to get Sinatra on my radio show. A local radio show. This is the height of Sinatra's fame. Gleason said. In Miami. Yeah. Uh, what's his off night at the Funnable? I said, next Monday. He said, you got him. I said, what? He says, you got him. I said, Jackie. He said, you got him. Jackie was very close. I was very close with Jackie. So I go back to the radio station. I said, next Monday, Frank Sinatra. And people are calling and come on. The station calls me in on Friday and say, we're taking a full page ad in the Miami Herald. We've called the Fontainebleau a dozen times. He doesn't return our calls. Are you sure he's going to do it? I said, well, Jackie told me he'll do it. I said, well, you're taking an ad. I'll call Jackie. I'll call Jackie. I said, is it okay for Monday night? He says, what? I go, oh, my God. I said, Sinatra, he says, oh, don't worry. Okay. I said, he said, don't worry. Now it's Monday night. It's five minutes to nine. The whole station's there. The secretaries didn't go home. Salesmen didn't go home. Limo pulls up. Sinatra gets out. He had to walk up a few steps. It was a beautiful station, WIOD. I'm at the top of the stairs with a whole bunch of people. Sinatra walks up and says, who's Larry King? <laughs> I said, me. We go into the studio. We sit down. And God's honest truth, here's what I did. The light goes on. And I said, good evening. My guest is Frank Sinatra. Why are you here? <laughs> I didn't say my friend. I didn't. And he said, well, 10 years ago, I was working at Ben Maxick's Town and Country Club. In New York, it was closing night. I had laryngitis. A packed house. I called Gleason. I said, Jackie, would you come and do the show? Jackie was a big star on television. He came. He did an hour and a half. So I walked him out to his car when he was leaving. And I said, Jackie, I owe you one. So I'm at the Fontainebleau. I get a message to call Gleason. I call him up. I said, Jackie, it's Frank. And he said, Frank, this is the one. Breaking the rules. Always broke the rules. I never thought about it. I never said to myself, is this a good question or bad question? Is this stupid or not? And I came from a point of view of leaving my uh, ego at the door, not using the word I, and trusting my instincts. I always trusted my instincts. And I listened to people growing up about that Godfrey was a hero, Red Bob at a base, and they always kind of broke rules. I like people who did things differently, who trusted their gut. And I do that to this. I trust my gut. You know, and people will say to me, well, how, why did you ask that you know i'm interviewing a person with a scar on his face where'd you get the scar and like you you ask that yeah people are seeing it i'm sitting there with a man with a scar ask about the scar they're thinking it ask as herbie says the key to larry king's success is he's stupid basically he's saying help me i don't know help me Richard Pryor. He was something. 
He was fun to interview. He was very, very thoughtful. And he put a new place in comedy. He changed comedy. He was risky. He was a black stand-up. He was just special. Why he lit himself on fire? <laughs> but he was very sick at the end. It was sad when he left. Nelson Mandela. One of my favorite people of all time. The most important figure of the 20th century. To live in captivity for 26 years for crimes he didn't commit. To get a call on the same day I was, I interviewed Mandela twice, but I was in South Africa and I was at his house. And he came to the door wearing suspenders. And that just flipped me. And uh, that same night that I had lunch with Mandela, I had dinner with de Klerk, the man who freed him. And the clerk told me he called Mandela the night before Mandela was to be released. Yeah. And he said, I'd like to have you address Parliament the next day. And Mandela said, no, I'm going to walk off. I'll walk to my people, and I'm going to be with my people. And then when he was elected president, he invited the guards from his prison to come to his investiture. Mandela was Mandela was an extraordinary human being. He defined human being. Wow. Quincy Jones. I love Quincy. He had dinner here. There's a new uh, movie out about him. Uh, innovator, Sinatra loved him. Great arranger. Soft-spoken. And... Quincy Jones is well within himself. He's totally comfortable in his own persona. He's a joy to be around. Incredible. Robin Williams. Off the cuff wild. The trouble with Robin's humor is you couldn't remember anything. It went so fast, it went so quick. So I can't... I... I did him on radio, did him on television. I can't remember any joke he ever said. He was too quick, too fast. Uh, Jonathan Winters was his idol. They would leave messages for each other on the phone that were hysterical. Jonathan Winters was hysterical. The concept of marriage. Well, I've been at it a lot. I've had seven of them, but this last one's been 21 years. Funny, and in the others, I never really felt married. I've only been in love with three people in my life, really in love. I know what in love is. I got married because you're supposed to get married. When I was a kid, you're supposed to get married. Uh, I, I felt that what you loved at 20 is not what you loved at 30. I thought monogamy was impossible. Look at this house I live in. My father, who never made $5,000 a year, would see this house and say, you stole this? Well, how did you get this? <laughs> you robbed a bank? Do you feel like you'd be doing what you're doing 
had your father lived? Don't know. I feel I would, yeah, because I so wanted broadcasting, so I wanted it before he died. And I, I was nine and a half when he died, suddenly of a heart attack. Yeah, I think I'd, I think I'd be doing it. I don't. I probably would have gone to college, because you know, as he grew and uh, my brother died last year, and that was very sad. He was three and a half years younger than me. To lose a sibling was very tough. We were close. I'm going to be 85 in November. I can't believe I'm 85. I can't believe it. I can't believe 80 fucking five. Jesus. Your proudest moment in show business. <sighs> getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Emmys. Presented in New York. Great honor. I want two Peabody's, which is our Pulitzer. But that night, to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, I'd say that was... The proudest personal achievement was fatherhood. Nothing beats fatherhood. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, 
and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.